Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Robin Buller, and today I am very excited to have Adam Teller as our guest. He is a professor of Judaic Studies and History at Brown University and a scholar of early modern European Jewish history. He's the author of another fairly new book, actually, from 2017, Money, Power, and Influence in 18th Century Lithuania, The Jews on the Radziwill Estates. My Polish is awful. And today he joins us to discuss his newest book, Rescue the Surviving Souls, The Great Jewish Refugee Crisis of the 17th Century, published by Princeton University Press. So Adam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Um, Now, I've got to say, we were chatting before we started recording. This is such an impressive book, um, and you cover a vast number of regions and sort of have all of these individual micro-histories that you've tied together um, quite succinctly. So, bravo. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And before we get into the book itself, though, I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about yourself and how how you got here. Okay. Well, as you can hear... I was born in England, I was born in London, mm-hmm. and, and educated there. I did my first degree at Oxford University, um, and then I went to Israel, where I did my graduate work at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, where I worked on the history of Polish Jews. Um, and after that, I had a job from 15 or so years at the University of Haifa, also in Israel. And then in 2010, I came to Brown, um, where I've been since then. All right. And so then with that said, how did you come to write about the history of of refugees and more specifically of Jewish refugees fleeing violence in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in the 17th century? What what brought you to this topic? How did you find it? Well, most of my work until I started this project was on economic and social history. Hmm. Um, And my book on the Jews and the Radzivili States is actually an an economic history of that that, uh, phenomenon. And I was looking for a small economic project. I was in a working group on economic history. I was looking for a small project, and I'd heard, read a small article about Jews being ransomed, Jewish captives in Eastern Europe being ransomed in the Mediterranean. And I thought, let's look at where the money comes from. I always do that. (laughs) Follow the money. Follow the money. (laughs) um, I thought, let's follow the money. But, But what happened was I started following the money, but wherever I looked, I found refugees. Um, it was quite remarkable. I was looking at Italian communities, I was looking at Eastern Europe communities, European communities, I was looking at Central European communities, Amsterdam, and everywhere I looked, you're looking at histories of the places, they will always have in one of the early chapters a, you know, a, dis- a brief discussion of the refugees who came from Poland and how important they were in the early days of the community or the 17th century history of the community. And the more I did this, the more it sort of came upon me that this is not a small phenomenon at all, that in fact there are very few places in the European and the Mediterranean Jewish world where these refugees didn't come, and mm. no one had thought about them. I mean, very, very little work had been done. Um, and so I decided that what I need to do is try to see what the story underlying all this is. What is the story? What are these refugees? And that started me off on a kind of process, um, which was really remarkable. It was fun, great fun, but very long. Uh, because, 
there were no sources. There was no block of sources. Like we historians usually, we find our block of sources and we read them and we work through them and then we write our book and we're happy. But I didn't have that. And I suppose that's sort of like the nature of studying refugees in a sense, especially in the early modern period. Yeah, right there. yeah I think today there are refugee organizations, so you could right. use their material. But in the early modern period, nothing like that. Mm. And, and so I was really just going from small piece to small piece. I was you know, doing the detective work to find information about the Jews in all these different places in mm-hmm. order to make a kind of mosaic picture. Um, and I say it was enormous fun. I mean, I had a wonderful time doing it. But, it, you know, it's very slow because um, you're all the time thinking, is, is this a good place? Is that a good place? Mm-hmm. Interestingly, I couldn't have written this book 15 years ago because so much of the material I was using comes from early printed books, 17th century books, um, which all of which I had online at home. I mean, I could just sit at home and call these books up. You, you'd look at the wow. book and you say, I think that book's interesting. But I could just press a button, you know, and there it is, sometimes in a better scan, sometimes in not such a good scan, but <laughs> you can find it. 15 years ago, I would have spent years and years going around libraries because often there's only just one copy of the book. Right. right. And, I, and so this is really very much a 21st century study. Right. Yeah. We are so fortunate to be doing so, history now. That's right. And so what I was really, what I became interested in was the fact that I mean, it's the human side of this story. I started looking for the money, and I, there's a lot in the book about the money. I haven't ignored it. Mm-hmm. But once I started doing the research, I realized that if you want to understand a, a phenomenon of refugees, you have to look for the people, and you want to hear their voices. And so I spent a lot of time, and it was quite successful, in finding individual voices telling of refugee experiences. Um, And so it was by doing that and a lot of other things around it that I was able to sort of piece together this picture. It was very, also very challenging because, as you said, this was not a small phenomenon, small crisis. There were Jewish refugees in Eastern Europe. There were some in Central and Western Europe. There were some in the Ottoman Empire and the Eastern Mediterranean. And so I found myself, you know, looking at this huge expanse um, and trying to make sense sense of it in a small piece by small piece. That's why it took such a long time, but that's why I enjoyed it so much. Well, you did a very good job of tying together all of these, you know, concurrent phenomena that were happening. Um, it's it's just such an interesting history. So I wonder um, if before we get to the history um, of the refugees themselves and their experiences, if you could give our listeners a bit of background information on um, to the history that you're writing. So where did these refugees come from? Um, what prompted the crisis? Who was involved in it? What are those sorts of pieces of information that listeners and readers might need to understand? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a history, I'm a historian of Polish Jews. So it's, uh, these, these refugees come from what they called in the early modern period, Poland-Lithuania, mm-hmm. which included Ukraine. Ukraine was a part of that huge conglomerate at that time. Um, and... Ukraine in particular had been um, a site in which the Jews had made a lot of wealth. They'd become very um, firmly grounded economically. They had a thriving cultural life. Uh, And it was to do with their economic relationship with the nobility. Um, Mm. Ukraine was basically occupied by Poland. Um, And so uh, the nobility, which was either Polish or Catholic or both, 
um, ran Ukraine, which was populated by a large population of peasants who weren't Catholic, they were Orthodox. Hmm. And so there's a lot of tension in, in Ukraine between the nobility who are running the show and the people on the ground um, who are bitterly resentful of what's being done to them economically and religiously. Um, in the middle of that are the Jews, because the Jews have moved in as managers. They take up a managerial position. They lease out the noble estates and run them for the nobles. Um, their profit is the money they can squeeze from the peasants above what they've paid for the lease. And so you have this triangle in Ukraine of um, um, the very resentful peasant population, mm-hmm. um, um, uh, a nobility which is Catholic, but many, and, and many of the Polish too, and many of them, though, aren't there, they're in Warsaw, right? They want to be close to power. And the Jews running the show on the ground. And of course, um, it was bad enough for the peasants to be ruled over by Catholics, but to be ruled over by Jews was in early modern times, you couldn't get a greater humiliation than that. Mm. And so there's this kind of enormous uh, economic, religious, uh, cultural, social tension in Ukraine. Um, and I don't think the Jews are expecting trouble. They're, you know, they're doing very well for themselves and they're very happy about it. Unfortunately for them, um, something quite extraordinary happens. And it starts off as a, quite a normal thing. The, the, the army units, whose job was to protect Ukraine from the Tatar, from the, the Muslim forces in Crimea, who spent their time um, and made their living by capturing slaves, so they had a, a, an army unit called Cossacks, whose job it was to keep the Tatars at bay. They made a rebellion for better terms and conditions. Not that, they didn't like Jews at all, um, but the Jews weren't their major beef. Their major beef was with the parliament, was the same, and they wanted more money and better conditions. Um, so they had an uprising, and their leader, a man called Khmelnytsky, smart guy, he brought the Tatars in on his side. So he turned his enemy into his ally, and they attacked mm. Poland. And that too wouldn't have come to very much in normal conditions because it happened before. But un- unfortunately for Poland, the king died just as this was get- taking off. Ah. And Poland had an elected monarchy, so the country had to elect a new king. So everything ground to a halt. And the Cossack rebellion was enormously successful. At which moment, the peasants, seeing that this was taking off, joined in and turned this military uprising into a huge popular rebellion. And the peasants had enormous hatred for the Jews. I mean, also for the, the, the Catholic monarch, uh, um, nobility. But they hate, and so it became a bloodbath. Mm. The Jews were um, massacred in their communities. They began to flee from community to community as each city fell, the Jews would run away as much as they could to the next community where there would be a fortress in the hope that the that fortress would stand. But it didn't because the towns fell one after the other. And so the Jews were, were massacred in huge numbers. The best figures we have, we don't know actual numbers because it's the early modern period and we don't have good numbers. But right. probably in the region of 30% of the population was massacred. Which is a you know a huge that's enormous, yeah. enormous, 
and at least the same number fled. Right? Some of them fled locally from town to town. Some of them fled further, going into Poland or going north to Lithuania. But there was another group that were captured by the Tatars, who were the Cossacks' allies. I know I've said this very sort of in a teles- telescoped way. Mm. But the Tatars, they made their living from slaving. And in 1648, they began to capture Jews and send them to Istanbul as slaves. Uh, and so they had their refugees and they had the Jews that were captured. And this was an enormous shock because the Jews, to be honest, weren't expecting it. They were doing extremely well for themselves. They were very happy. And this came out of nowhere. Um, even worse, they thought it was going to be a messianic year. 1648 was supposed to be the year the Messiah was going to come. And so right. We have a wonderful text, someone saying, we expected the Messiah and the resurrection of the dead, and instead we got tens of thousands of murdered Jews. So it's kind of, just to say that kind of terrible feeling. Mm. So that went on for a number of years. It finished in 1654, at which moment Poland's agony didn't stop because two other Eastern European forces, Russia to its east and Sweden to the north, decided that Poland was so weak that they could in fact invade and take, you know, and capture bits of Poland and conquer it for themselves. So Poland went into another period of wars, um, lasted until 1667 with the Russians and a bit in 1660 with the Swedes. And of course, these were wars that were not aimed at the Jews, but the Jews were always targets. They were targets in Lithuania to the Russians and they were targets in Western Poland where the Swedes came. And even worse, they were targets targeted also by the Polish resistance. The Poles fought back against the Swedes and they targeted the Jews too. And so you have more deaths and many more Jews fleeing. And it's in those times, those, from those places, you see Jews fleeing not southwards to the Mediterranean, but westwards into um, Central Europe. Um, so it's a time of enormous upheaval and uncertainty. Mm. Um, and um, it looks for a time as if Polish Jewry is finished, is you know, on its last legs. Um, that isn't what happened, but th- that was a feeling in the sort of early 50s. Things were really very, well, the mid-50s were very bad. Um, didn't work out like that for reasons I go into in the book. Um, but I think that's the background. Was that reasonably clear? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it's just such a, I mean, the way you describe it is, it was such an enormous upheaval, but also there were so many refugees floating around during this period. And so I do find myself surprised that this is the first, you know, work on on the topic of the refugee experience. And I'm wondering if, if you have a sense of why that might be, why haven't people looked into this before? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. Um, first of all, you talked about the difficulty of the sources. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll come back to that. But first of all, a Jewish history has a very strong martyrological approach. Right? Um, Jewish historians love to love the pogroms. They love to count the dead. There's an enormous amount of ink been spilt on the numbers of Jews who were killed during the Chmielnicki uprising, mm-hmm. and um, the religious aspects of martyrdom, Kiddush Hashem in Hebrew. And it's a lot has been written about it. Um, and, that, and that's what people have focused on. People just didn't think about the survivors. It just wasn't considered to be anything very important. Um, and I can understand it in some senses. I mean, uh, the death was enormous and shocking. 
Um, right. But people just didn't look at the survival. They didn't think about it. It seemed natural that the, some Jews would survive and they'd go back to living their lives. And I, when I was looking at it, I thought that's not natural at all. If you have 30% of the population killed, people just don't go back and resume their lives. Right. You have, mm-hmm. I would reckon altogether at least 30,000 Jews became refugees. And it's not a lot in today's terms, but in the early modern period, that is a large population. Right. Um, and they're spread across the world. And uh, you can't, it's hard to ignore them. The other thing that makes it very difficult is that pretty much straight after the refugee crisis in the mid 60s, you have the affair of Shabtai Svi, the very famous false messiah. Right. Um, who who uh, announced his messiahhood in the land of Israel in 1665. Um, and in 1666 was imprisoned by the Sultan and eventually forced to convert to Islam. Now, the news and the excitement of his appearance and then the shock right, at his um, um, conversion to Islam um, spread across the Jewish world and was an enormous major phenomenon in the Jewish world, which also mm-hmm. attracted a lot of attention. And so between those two things, the refugees got missed. Right. And if you add to that the fact that I, you know there was no block of sources, I was you know I really was looking at one you know a few sentences here and a few sentences there, which just didn't stick out. You know, it didn't pop out to the eye. You had to look for it quite hard. So I think those are the reasons. Um, that was my good luck. <laughs> and and so when you you know came came to this topic, realized that it would be possible to write something on it. What were your what were the questions that you were asking? What were your sort of driving research questions? Um, and then what were your you've talked a little bit about it, um, but I'd love to hear a couple more stories. What were your research methods in terms of, you know, the types of sources that you did find? What archives, if you know, if any, did you use? Right. And yeah. So first of all, I wanted to look at this as a human phenomenon. I, I, Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, in, in terms of the news as well, I hate looking at refugees as large numbers. It doesn't make sense to me. Refugees are people, and, and I really wanted to understand what the refugee experience was, mm. what people went through, and how they understood it. So that was the first thing. I really was looking for first-hand evidence of what it meant to be a refugee. Um, and then I, the next thing you think about is these suffering refugees. How, how is their suffering relieved? in an immediate basis, right? They, they've left their homes, they're in strange places, whether they're still in Eastern Europe or they're in other places. What is done to help them on an immediate basis? How is that suffering um, relieved? Right? And that means looking not just at the, the Jews themselves, but looking at the communities around them. Mm-hmm. So that was the second thing I, need, I needed to do, was to try to understand the context in which the refugees found themselves and what was done there. The third thing I needed to look at was um, the question of reconstructing lives. That's the third aspect of it, because the refugee crisis did come to an end. Right? Uh, by the mid-60s, um, you know, you're, you're, things have moved on. There are all kinds of other problems, but it's not that problem anymore. And Jews in Eastern Europe were very successful in reconstructing their lives. I said you'd have thought that the Eastern European jury was finished, but in fact it wasn't it bounced back extremely strongly. In addition, Jews in, the Polish Jews in Germany formed the basis for the 
renewed growth of German Jewry in the, in the late 17th and 18th century. And so these are quite, this refugee crisis is dealt with quite successfully. So how did that happen? And you can look mm-hmm. at that on a number of different levels. There's, um, um, you know, organization, both of the Jews and of the people around them. Um, then there's a question of um, money, because the Jews became extremely poor. How did they reconstruct their economy? Mm-hmm. But I also was very interested in the personal questions. I, I, I was thinking about trauma. I mean, it's a very traumatic experience being a refugee. Um, and obviously, I couldn't look at it in terms of PTSD and the kind of way we look at trauma today. And I certainly didn't want to look at trauma as a cultural phenomenon because I'm, I have problems with that concept. Mm. I wanted to try to understand what the traumatized individual could do or could be done for that person to overcome that trauma, spiritually, psychologically, in order to resume their life. Their lives were shattered. These people, everything that they'd had had gone, right? Right. Family, belongings, everything had gone. And so I really wanted to understand how they could pull themselves together and reconstruct their lives. Now, obviously, I couldn't generalize, and from, I'll explain why, I and mean, you obviously know why, because I don't have that kind of source. Right. But I, I really wanted to look at as many ex- cases as I could in order to get a sense of the kind of things that were done. So those were kind of what I was looking for, to make mm-hmm. the refugee crisis a human phenomenon, not, a, you know, not just a, a, a block of some right. things that happened. Sources, well, sources... I was incredibly lucky. Well, I was lucky because I did find a significant... You did spend 10 years on it. So <laughs> lucky, but also very determined. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, but I, I was determined once I'd worked out the, the sources because I was able to find two very significant sets of first-hand sources, people mm-hmm. talking about their own experiences. So the first were what I called autobiographical vignettes. Rabbinic figures, because they were the ones who wrote books mostly, would write mm-hmm. their rabbinic books, very often 15, 20 years after the events, and in the introduction to their book would spend time talking about their experience. And it's also to do, I think, with trauma, right? Traumatic experiences, flashes of memory. That was the impression I got. Hmm. You'd have this, you know, the introduction, the technical introduction to a book, but suddenly the memory would flash out, and they and right. they put the, often three or four lines, no more, sometimes a bit more, but it was so often there. And I began to get a nose for it. Well, this is a book that's going to have something, um, <laughs> and, and those were quite remarkable because they're firsthand. This is what happened to me, right? And it's vivid, vivid writing. That was wonderful. The other thing I found were depositions. Um, one of the issues that the refugee crisis raised, uh, it's raised by a lot of problems, uh, is a question of what they call in Hebrew agunot, um, Jewish women. Uh, according to Jewish law, if a Jewish woman, Jewish woman who has no husband cannot either produce divorce documents mm-hmm. or evidence, I mean, concrete evidence of the husband's death, she's not allowed to remarry. And so the rabbinic courts post-1648 are full of cases of Jewish women bringing any kind of evidence they can to show 
what happened to their husband. Hmm. And they gave depositions, um, often in wow. Yiddish. And those depositions are very often saved verbatim and published as the rabbi who ran the court pub, published his um, responsa, they would be published verbatim. And mm. so I, I actually could have first-hand accounts even by women. Right? Wow. Um, and, and that's what allowed me to think about it in human terms. And once I'd worked out that those were there, then the issue was finding them. Right? That's what I spent 10 years doing. Um, in terms of the communities around, right, helping these Jews, mm-hmm. um, well, I, I did look in a number of communal archives. Um, some have survived. Um, and in Italy, there's some quite good communal archives in Modena. Um, yeah, Modena. Um, and Venice, obviously. Padua. Um, but in Eastern Europe, you have record books, Pinkasim. Um, and I, I was able to put together um, a kind of picture of some of the efforts that were done to relieve the suffering by the community. Very helpful were letters particularly fundraising letters, right? There were two rabbis in Venice, Shmuel Abouab and Moshe Zakut, um, who sort of spearheaded fundraising for various things, and their correspondence has survived. And that was wonderful because that's international or trans-regional, whatever you want to call it. Um, they're writing to friends and colleagues across Europe and, in fact, um, in the Eastern Mediterranean, but trying to raise money. And so I have their correspondence, which is fantastic. Um, what else did I have? Well, I had a certain number of un- non-Jewish archives. I mean, there was material from the Viennese archive that was published that I could use. And I found some in an archive from a town in, in Lithuania called Slutsk, Slutsk, which I knew from my work on the Radjivils. I had yeah, come across the material then. Um, so, so I didn't have too much non-Jewish archival material, but a little bit. But the, the most fun source, perhaps, were the Yiddish sources. Um, turns out that there was, in the early modern period, a whole literature, popular literature, what they perhaps called chapbooks in Yiddish, hmm. um, which sort of de- deals with various aspects of what I was interested in, not very often not directly, but indirectly. Hmm. But this is popular writing, so it's not aimed at the elite, it's aimed at more simple people in women could have had access to, the, to these kinds of materials. And they could give me a sense of what the feeling was on the street, how the, mm. you know, the simple, simple oh, that's not right, what the feeling was on the street. Let's leave it at that. Um, the Ashkenazi The everyday street. folks. <laughs> yeah, the Yiddish-speaking street. You can get a sense from there. Um, I have one wonderful source, which I use in the third section, um, the Beschreibung from Ashkenazi and Polak, the description of a Polish, a Polish Jew and a German Jew. Um, and that is a form of a satirical dialogue um, between a, a German Jewish uh, poor householder and a Polish Jewish refugee. Um, and the Polish Jew has come to the German Jew for help. And the German Jew doesn't like the Polish Jew, and the Polish Jew doesn't like the German Jew. And they have this kind of, you know, very barbed discussion. Um, and it was done for satirical purposes, meant to make people laugh. But it was beautiful because you just get a sense of the kind of environment and the kind of feelings. You know, even if it's all exaggerated. So <laughs> that, was, that was, I think, the, the, my greatest, I think I loved best of, of the material were those, um, those Yiddish sources. Very hard to read. Old Yiddish is really difficult. 
and I needed a lot of help, I'll be honest. Well, I mean, I can't imagine how difficult it must have been in general dealing with all of the various languages that you were, you know, having to confront in your research. How many, you said uh, somewhere in the book, it says how many, nine? What is Twelve. It? Twelve. So. Twelve languages. I, <laughs> I, I, I'll be honest, I don't speak all twelve. Uh, you didn't working... spend ten years learning them all fluently. <laughs> Uh, people working <laughs> on the Jews of Eastern Europe are forced to learn uh, quite a number of languages. Mm. Um, um, so I've, I don't know, I probably was able to deal myself with six of them, and I needed help with the other six. Um, still, six is still quite a few. <laughs> well, you have to. You can't, Polish Jews, it's a multilingual environment, and you can't work right. together. Right. But I, I, wasn't, I wasn't ashamed to ask for help, I'll be honest. It, it, I, it, Born on me very early in the project that it was the enormous chutzpah what I was doing. I was right. with Polish Jews. Right? That's what I do. And now I've got these <laughs> Jews in Germany. I've got them in the Ottoman Empire. And I'm suddenly writing about it. You know, you have to be <laughs> humble about it and say, all right, I'm going to, you know, I spend a lot of time learning. I'm not, I didn't do the research. But I, Absolutely. But um, I'm humble enough to know I need to take advice. I need help for, for a lot of this stuff. So I did. That's why the list of thanks at the beginning is so long. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, the book obviously fits fits into any number of, of historiographies, but there are sort of two conversations, I would say, in within the writings of Jewish studies that you really engage with. And one is, um, you know, what, what we call the lachrymose conception of Jewish history, and the other is sort of the history of Jewish networks that has become uh, a larger and larger field over the last few years. I'm wondering if you could talk just a little bit about how you sort of situate this book within those two conversations. Yeah. Well, I mean, the lacrimose conception basically argues that if you want to understand Jewish history, you can't see it as driven by anti-Semitism and violence. Jewish history has its own internal um, dynamic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's a dynamic that's driven by contacts with this uh, with surrounding world. And uh, the, the doyen of uh, Jewish historians of the 20th century, Salo Baron, who was professor of Jewish history at Columbia, mm-hmm. wrote a very influential article against what he called the lacrimose conception of Jewish history, uh, saying that, you know, what, why would you focus on violence? Violence is very short-lived. A pogrom can take a two, couple of days. Right? An expulsion is a, a short time. What about the long periods in between where everyone lived together? And of course, mm-hmm. on one level, he was absolutely right. Um, and in, you can't see Jewish history as driven by those kind of phenomena. What happened, though, was I think he, but more his students, and now his student students, mm-hmm. uh, have taken this conception and sort of argued that, in fact, it, it, you know, anti-Semitism is very often um, really quite a negligible force in Jewish history. It doesn't mm-hmm. have long-term effects. It happens. You're telling the story of time and place, there may be a pogrom, but it's of that time and place. My material told me that it's absolutely not the case. That what the events that I was studying, the refugee crisis that I was looking at, had consequences that ran well after the actual events themselves, decades after. Um, and that it's true that there were, after the violence, there, was no, there wasn't further violence that was causing the problem. But you have people who've been through violence, which has changed them. It's, it, most basic level, it changed where they live, but it can change them in all other kinds of ways. 
And if you don't think about that and how the Jewish world has to deal with people traumatized by violence long after the violence itself, you're not going to understand Jewish history. My sense is that that phenomenon of dealing with violence and reconstructing life after violence is probably a very long-lasting and key phenomenon in Jewish history that no one has looked at. Hmm. And so I came out against the lacrimose conception of Jewish history. It probably makes me one on my own, I'm, but uh, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't mind that. I, I, I think it's, it's been overused. Hmm. And I think we need to go back and think very deeply about the meaning, the long-term meaning of violence, expulsion, and so on, um, and reconstruction. Um, before we say that violence is not a significant phenomenon. So that was me being argumentative. <laughs> um, in terms of the networks, well, I was, the major network that we know and has been you know, widely studied in the early modern period is a network of Sephardi Jews, mm-hmm. what they call um, new, new Christians or new Jews, right? Depending, they used to call them mm-hmm. converts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who, um, following um, the expulsion from Spain, um, left, sort of not in 1492, but during the 16th century, settled in uh, Western Europe. Um, They did trade with the the Jews who'd fled to the Ottoman Empire. They also spread out to the West, into the New World, and they created very, very extensive mercantile networks. which were underpinned the kind of early modern globalization and the movement towards globalization in the early modern period. It was part of that phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And the economic, social, and religious aspects of those networks have been studied at some, in some depth now. Um, and it's really fascinating and it's really important because the, these, these Sephardic Jews are creating a new kind of Judaism. It's an, it's an early, new early modern form of Judaism. So I'm not in any sense saying that it's denigrating. But it was, that was by no means the only network that functioned in the early modern period. And the Sephardic Jews were not the only Jews who had such a network. Hmm. Um, I was looking at philanthropic networks. And there were philanthropic networks of Sephardic Jews and Ashkenazi Jews, which crossed Europe, Southern Europe, the Eastern Mediterranean, parts of North Africa. Um, and they weren't mercantile networks. These are philanthropic networks. So a mercantile network runs according to economic logic. Right. Uh, and um, it has, it's open. I mean, it's, it's a thing of business, so it's not just limited to Jews. Jews may be a kind of um, core of uh, people in a network, but it's open to business connections of all sorts. A philanthropic network, on the other hand, isn't. Right. A philanthropic network is really focused on Jews, trying to you know, get Jews to um, um, help each other. And so I was looking at this different kind of network, much more closed, um, much more religious, um, because, I mean, the question of poverty relief, and in particular ransoming slaves, which is called in Hebrew, pilyon shuim, is a halachic imperative. It's a religious imperative. It's part of Jewish law. Hmm. And so this is um, a much more deeply religious-driven activity than the Sephardic networks. Um, 
And so I was really, I mean, so I was trying to open up the picture. Mm -hmm. it's, it's another aspect of the way we've thought about Jewish history, certainly until the Sephardic Network began to be studied, but even since then, is that we've tended to think about Jewish history as embedded in its environment. If you want to understand Polish Jews, it's because they're Polish, or German Jews, it's because they're in Germany. If you want to understand right. them, you have to look at the German context or the Italian, Polish context, whatever it is. And of course, that's absolutely right, and, and I've done a lot of work on that in my career. Um, <laughs> but it, 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 misses a, it misses a dimension of Jewish life, which is um, that Jewish communities in different places are in contact with each other, right. with money, letters, books, people. Um, and this is as formative a phenomenon as the embeddedness of Jews. And so I wanted also to push back against that, what is the cultural turn in Jewish history, and try to look more, to bring back into focus the trans-regional aspects of Jewish history. Um, and so that was another of the things I was really trying to do in terms of my historiographical thrust in the book. Hmm. Um, so let's talk about, you know, I've sort of... <laughs> I've, I've asked you so many questions about what brought you to the book. And then, you know, you, you hit 37 minutes and you're like, let's talk about the book now. Uh, so, so as you mentioned at the beginning, you sort of divide these displaced persons into, into three categories, right? So you have those who were displaced internally, who remained in Eastern Europe, but whose homes were still destroyed. You still suffered enormous trauma. Um, you have the group that was kidnapped by the Tatar enslavers and who were trafficked in Istanbul and around the Mediterranean. And then you have the group who a little bit later um, sought refuge in, in, you know, west of, in their west, but in what is sort of central, <laughs> central Europe and in parts of Western Europe um, and beyond. So, so let's start, let's go in your, in your book's order. Um, but we'll of course tie these things together as you do so well in the book. So what prompted the displacement of um, of this group of people, what characterized their suffering, and then what what really sort of characterized their experiences of of reconstruction? Right. So, the internal refugees really this is the first group. It's the Ukrainian group. It's a panic right. flight. Right. The people who've left everything behind and just fled. Right. In panic, they're in fear of their lives, um, and that then, as I say, they went from town to town, and they some of them left Ukraine to enter other parts of Eastern Europe. Um, in terms of their experience, they remained basically at home. Hmm. I mean, you know, there were cultural differences between Ukraine, Lithuania, and Poland, Crown Poland, but they were basically at home. This, this was a known environment, and the people they were running to knew them. Um, doesn't mean that they weren't desperately traumatized. I have a, a very touching story of a, a young boy. This is the, the man in his end of his life writes this story. He remembers as a young boy. He'd fled with his father to, to Lithuania, and mm. he would go up in the evening to the roof of the house with the, the Talmud he was studying, and he said, I wept tears of what was it, anguish mm. for God to show his light to me, and I banged my head on the wall, right? So these are traumatized people. You know, he, you know, he was saying, I, I was forced to flee, and then I found myself, you know, sort of banging my head. It, it, it's... it's really touching it really touches the heart they were treated outside ukraine because ukraine was in mayhem they were treated really quite well on the whole um 
if you look at the one town I discovered, these people are taken in. The people in the towns they flee to open their houses to them. So they let the Jews sort of move in with them. If you stay in their houses, they allow them to work, which is very uncommon in, in early modern uh, Jewish society. Hmm. You're only, only people who live in the town are allowed to work in the town, but they open it for the Jews. Hmm. Um, and, you know, th- they really do what they can to give these Jews a chance of survival. The, um, the, the regional organization, the Lithuanian Council, is also right, very concerned about dealing with the refugees. Initially, you know, it's very, it's very upbeat and it's going to do all kinds of things to help them and then it runs out of money. Um, and so it, it becomes quite desperate. But it is making every effort it can to organize things so that these Jews will be able to survive. They're given the tools that they need to survive. Not easy, right? And, and you see the Jewish wives are working alongside the husbands, the wives are baking, the husbands are, tra- you know, are petty trading. Um, mm-hmm. Anything they can just so they can survive until they're able to decide the next step. And the next step is either staying put, right? And then you have to sort of change your status in the town where you are or go back home. Um, and m- many of the Jews go back. Right? Uh, mm. Although they, some Jews think it should be like Spain where, you know, there was a harem and you shouldn't go back to Spain after the Jews have been expelled. The Jews of right. Ukraine didn't think that. They went home. Mm. They went back to their towns. They began to reconstruct them. They took back their property. Right. Wow. Very often, you know, they'd either buried their goods or given it to someone for safekeeping, so they would take that back, and they began to reconstruct their lives very rapidly. Um, and if their property had been taken from them, then they would take the thieves to court. Right, the big, big effort for the Jews. Right, they used the court system to help themselves reconstruct their lives, um, and they were really remarkably successful. Partly because they were better at it than the non-Jewish townspeople. <laughs> who for various reasons found themselves more dependent on ag- agriculture and couldn't move back, couldn't take up their urban in- occupations. So the Jews actually, in a kind of strange way, became deep, more deeply involved in the urban economy. The other mm-hmm. thing the Jews of Poland did, and I'm very aware that we're running out of time. Um, oh, no, no problem. That they, um, they were concerned with the spiritual and psychological aspects of what had happened. These Jews... Spent, you, can, you can see some of the rabbis trying to understand what had happened and why it had happened, not with much. So they couldn't come to a sort of unified picture. But what Polish Jewry did do was establish a day of a memorial day, a day of remembrance and fasting on the 20th of the Jewish month of Sivan, where all Polish Jews would stop, they would fast, they'd go into the synagogue, they would say sort of um, the special prayers that need to be said for the dead. And this was a moment at which they could stop and remember what had happened. Uh, and that form of working out a way of reintegrating trauma into the run of daily life, of mm. getting to a form of remembrance that is controlled, because trauma is uncontrolled remembering, um, it's today very clearly understood as key ways of overcoming trauma. And so this day of memorial, I think, was a really key moment in Polish Jews giving themselves the chance to work through what had happened. 
So you have socially, organizationally, economically, right? The Jews are putting themselves back on their feet. Um, right. And of course, they did so, so successfully. I mean, Eastern Europe became one right. of the major cultural right. centers for Jewry in the right. By the time you get to the, the, the last quarter of the 17th century, mm. right, the, the, the magnates are rebuilding the noble economy. They're mm -hmm. looking for partners. Uh, and the Jews are, are positioned themselves that they can take up that role, renew their economic relationship with the nobility, become very rich again, um, and recreate themselves as possibly in the 18th century, the largest, um, certainly one of the most vibrant centers of Jewish life uh, in the world. So that's a real story of success in its own way. Right, and success that they that they really sort of brought upon themselves in a, in a lot right. of ways. It's, and so, yeah. no. and I think that that's different from the story of those who were kidnapped and then trafficked right. in that's Istanbul. A, so That's a different story. Um, and uh, because those Jews, certainly at the beginning, I mean, lost their agency. Right? Right. They were kidnapped and they were, a, a lot of them were killed, right? They, the Tatars would really only take young people and most often just young women. Mm. Um, I have one great story of a, of a Jewish man who says that I, I only survived because I was young enough and I didn't, my beard hadn't come through yet. So they put a dress on me and the Tatars took me with the women. So he, that's how he survived. Yeah. Um, when these Jews came to Istanbul and they came in their thousands, um, it, caught, you know, it, it set up an enormous economic crisis there. Istanbul was also a very large, very wealthy Jewish community. Mm -hmm. But the amounts of money that were needed to ransom thousands of Jews were well beyond their capabilities. And they made huge efforts. Um, and we have you know, um, stories mentioned in the literature about um, the money being diverted from publishing in order, to, in order to ransom slaves, women, who would sell their jewelry and fine clothes in order to help the efforts to ransom the slaves over a period of 15 years. It's not, you know, it's not a small thing. Wow. But they, they couldn't, I mean, they were really pressed. Um, so they turned to a, a, a philanthropic network, which was in this case a Sephardic one, mm -hmm. um, whose job was to ransom prisoners. It was founded more to ransom prisoners captured by pirates in the Eastern Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. It was focused on Venice. Uh, Istanbul had really been interested not in um, not in Europe, but in the in the slaves coming from the Dead sea, from the Black Sea region. But when the situation got so bad in Istanbul, they sent their own emissary, a man called David Carcassoni, to Venice. Right, to those two rabbis, Shmuel Aboab and Moshe Zakut, begging them to allow him to go through this Sephardic network and raise money for the Jews of Istanbul, or the slaves, <laughs> for the ransoming in Istanbul. Um, and they do. I mean, they are masters, they are master fundraisers, and they're fundraising for all kinds of different things. Um, and Carcassoni travels around Italy, he travels through Europe, he gets to Amsterdam, um, and he, you know, he's there to raise money. He goes, he, he goes through this network. It's really interesting that the, these are Sephardic Jews who generally 
raise money for Sephardic Jews, right? just as Ashkenazic Jews generally raise money for Ashkenazic Jews. But at this moment, right, these Sephardic Jews are raising money for Ashkenazic Jews, for Polish Jews. And that is breaking down a division that was still very strong in the Jewish world. These are two separate cultural realms. They, they mm-hmm. live, but they're separate. But under the pressure of this crisis, right, those boundaries get blurred, at least for a time. Well, and it's still a boundary that just, I think, divides how we study Jewish history. And yes. that's part of why I love this book so much. It, it really does show that that's in some ways a boundary that we've put up <laughs> yeah. when we're looking back at the past. Yeah, well, it's a boundary that we've inherited and we should not have done, I think, is a better way of putting it. But yeah. Sure, sure, Absolutely. yes. Yes, exactly. So, um, you know, he didn't, he didn't raise a lot of money because uh, the calls on philanthropic funds were very great. They didn't only send money to the ransom in Istanbul. They had ransoming from the pirates in the Mediterranean. That hadn't stopped. Right. But there were also Polish Jews coming from Poland. All the destroyed communities were sending people out, bring us money. We have to rebuild our community. We need help. Right. And, and they were getting money too. So you know, there's, the, the calls on the money were, were great, and a lot of money was given to Polish Jews in different ways. So Carcassonne wasn't terribly successful in raising money, but... Um, he did come back home with some money, and afterwards the Istanbul Jew sent more emissaries out to collect more funds. I, I think in the end they must have financed it themselves. I don't think they got enough from Europe, which has its other issues to deal with. Um, but it was a remarkable moment where th- that entire Jewish world came together and was focused on this religious imperative of ransoming the slaves, our brothers, by the our brothers who have been uh, have been enslaved, um, and and that's in a central part of the chapter. Um, it, it is such a fascinating story. I can see why it's the it's the story that brought you into this entire it study. Is. <laughs> it is. It, it has so many of the things that I was interested in, um, in other ways too. Um, the, these Jews do get their agency back eventually. Yeah? They are freed. Mm. At which point, of course, there's no real imperative to help them. The religious imperative is gone. The religious imperative is to ransom the slaves. Now these mm. are just people, right? And right. So you, you can see them working, the men at least, working to raise money to go home. And they travel back and they don't seem to stay. The women, on the other hand, is a quite different story and a really, another really interesting story that I got in the book. Um, so I said these women... Going back home was not a good thing for these women. It was a long journey. It was very dangerous. Right. It was dangerous enough for men, um, but really very dangerous for women. And in many instances, I think they preferred to stay put. They were also worried that once they got home, they would come under suspicion of having slept with their captors or not you know, converted or whatever. Right. So they would, they'd come back to, to suspicion, and they'd probably better just to stay where they were. The problem was, though, if they wanted to stay, they needed a document, right? They needed a divorce, a letter, and I get a letter of divorce, mm-hmm. but they needed testimony. And um, there are great stories of what these Jewish women do. There is a group of Jewish women in Cairo, right, um, who have heard their husbands are still alive in Eastern Europe. So they hire oh, wow. a Jewish man, and they send him back to Eastern Europe to go to find the husbands and get the documents and bring them back to Cairo. Remarkable. And, Remarkably, he does. This man, 
you know, and, he, and of course, he, they get the documents get back to Cairo, and the rabbi has some very, very hard questions to ask about it, right? Very. How we know about it, um, but you know, th- these women are taking their own lives in their they're taking their own fate in their hands. I also discovered that they would work together collecting testimonies. So any Jewish woman who had a story of the experience in Eastern Europe would very often be taken to, to give a deposition in front of a rabbinic court and send it off to somebody who it might help. And so that, there's a kind mm. of information network develops of Jewish women, either themselves giving testimony or they find a man who's coming through town who's got something to say. Right, they drag him into the court, he gives the deposition, and then that can be sent off where it's needed. So the Jewish women are being proactive about trying to, you know, um, take their fate in their hands, even if they can't go home. Of course, if, if they stay, they're not likely to remain Ashkenazic Jews. They'll take on, um, you know, the customs of their new husband. Um, right. But, um, so you don't see a strong Ashkenazic presence of refugees in the Ottoman Empire. They, you know, they, that one they is integrate. in a different way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's successful because everyone goes home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then what characterized the experience of those refugees who, who, you know, migrated or sought refuge in Central Europe and in Western Europe? How, how was their experience different? It's, it's, uh, one of the things that's really interesting about that is you see um, organized migrate, organized flight. Right? Um, mm. What happened in Ukraine was a shock to everybody. Uh, by the time you get to the mid-1650s and the second wave of wars, Right, the Jews are already well aware of what's going on, right? Um, and so, if they feel that they are under threat in some way, the community will organise together, hire carts, and get up and go together. Right. Right. And I've got a number of cases of that, where you know, and very often they would just cross the border. Right? If they're going westwards to Silesia, they just cross the border and stop, right? and they'll wait until things quieten down, and they'll go back home again. Um, hmm. It's really um, quite a different sense of it. And, and you, we have first-hand eyewitness accounts of people coming in, and they always talk about the street being full of carts with boys, boys. It's always boys sitting on top of um, laden packages on carts. That's the vision <laughs> of these, all these come a number of it times. It is such that. an image, yes. Yeah. Um, some of them who stayed in Central Europe organized themselves into their own refugee organizations. So I have an organization of refugees from Great Poland, which is northwestern Poland right on the border. Um, and when they got to, um, got to Silesia, um, they set up a, a, a committee, a VAD, of, 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 of great Polish Jews in Silesia in order to represent their, uh, their interests uh, in this new surrounding. It's really quite remarkable. Um, you know, Polish Jews have a great talent for organization. Right? Mm. The, the institutional structure of, of the Jews in the Polish and the Commonwealth is really very sophisticated. And they obviously bring this with them, and they use this to their advantage at, at this moment of flight. Mm. Um, of course, not all the Jews are like that. You have many Jews who are fleeing as individuals. Um, and, you know, 
coming to Germany as a, as a refugee is quite different from coming to the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire is a wholly strange environment. Um, Germany, or the Holy Roman Empire, is an Ashkenazic environment, and the Polish Jews would have sort of expected it to be like home. Right. But of course, it wasn't like home. It's a whole different um, way of being Jewish. I mean, not a whole different, it is different. It's not the same. And so there, a lot of tension builds up between Polish Jews and German Jews. Uh, they look at each other and, and they don't appreciate what they see. Mm. So the, the German Jew will look at the Polish Jew and he'll see an uncouth, you know, unwashed, boor, um, uh, and criminal. Whereas the Polish Jew will look at the German Jew and see a cheap, mean, um, irreligious, cantankerous um, okay. person. And that's what and that, that one... goes on for centuries. I feel like that is still <laughs> that was still the stereotype in the interwar years. And one of the things I, I, I say is I think it actually begins here. Ah. It begins here because this is the first time the Polish Jews are moving in numbers westwards. Right. And so I think that the, the sources I have are the very first time that this happens. And since that that movement doesn't stop at the end of the refugee crisis, you have. First of all, economic refugees, and then you have just economic migrants. Right. That stereotype becomes deeply ingrained and becomes part of who, Ger who German Jews are. They define themselves in opposition to the right. Jews. Right. So it, I think it's a deep, deep phenomenon. Um, the Polish Jews found niches. They would work. They got into trans-regional trade. Something they'd done in Poland as well. Um, of course, Germany was straight after the Thirty Years' War, and so there was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of reconstruction. There were lots of openings that the Jews, well, not lots of openings, but there were openings that the Jews could exploit. Um, and the other thing they did in large numbers was they became religious functionaries. Religious education in Poland was at a reasonably high level, mm. and in Germany it was because of, uh, for historical reasons, it was really underdeveloped. Mm. And so. And many of these Jews became religious functionaries, whether it would be uh, kosher slaughterers, cantors, or preachers, and of course rabbis if they were better educated. And so German Jewish religious life became really quite Polonized. Um, and that was also part of a larger phenomenon of the homogenization of Ashkenazic Jewish life. These mm. Polish Jews um, sort of created a situation where religious life in Germany was very similar, or at least had a strong sense of what was happening in Poland too. And so that's another phenomenon I sort of talk about briefly. Mm -hmm. um, the Jews do settle eventually. Um, some, you, I, mean, I have all kinds of different, there are kinds of different um, testimonies that I have or vignettes that I have some remain deeply traumatized and depressed mm. um, for decades. Others um, not. Others have very successful careers um, and clearly are deeply embedded in German Jewish life. Um, although, as I say, if you look at their writings, you look at their introductions, these memories come flashing through. Right? They're, they're, you know, they're, mm. they're vivid in their minds. They've not gone away. It's been 20 years, but it's absolutely alive for them. Wow. Um, 
And so I, you know, I can't, I don't argue this very strongly in the book, but it's something I feel quite strongly that the beginnings of modern German Jewry might be in trauma. Interesting. But as I say, I don't develop that in the book because it's, trauma is such a difficult thing to examine anyway. I mean, I, I touch on it very briefly um, and very carefully because it's very difficult to do. Um, but I, I you know, have this very strong sense that German Jewry is coming out of, coming into the early modern period with this trauma, with this traumatized population. Um, scholars of German Jewry will either shoot me down in flames or back me up, but um, I'm happy for them to do either, to be honest. <laughs> um, what, they, what I am sure of, however, is that these Jews and the Jews that follow them, the economic refugees and the economic migrants, form the demographic basis for the renewal of German Jewry in the early modern and modern period. Um, the, you know, German Jewry is at, a, is at a low level by the end of the 16th century. It's beginning to pick up, and then you have the 30 Years' War. Right. But this influx of Jews you know, in growing numbers, they're not all just my refugees, but is, is the demographic basis for German Jewry's renewed growth. And that is incredibly important, bearing in mind the importance that the German Jewry had for the development of Jewish life in the 19th and 20th centuries. Very interesting. I, I do want to ask you um, at least one or two more questions, if you if you do have the time. I have the time. If you all like. right. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Um, so I'm wondering, so we've, I mean, we talked about this sort of briefly at the beginning, but obviously these sort of three groups have very different experiences. And if you were to pick sort of one or two things that tie together the experiences of these refugees, what might those elements be? Well, I mean, the first and most obvious is that these are all Polish Jews. Right. Um, and the whole world is focused on this issue. It's one issue that's focusing the whole Jewish world. And that's what's important, I think. Mm. Um, they all, they're all dragged from their lives into more or less foreign surroundings. It might just be from Ukraine to Lithuania, but it might be from Ukraine to Cairo. Um, and so what you're looking at is traumatized people in different environments and how they deal with that. And then you're looking at the ways in which the Jews in these different environments dealt with the problems that faced them. And these are not entirely separate. These Jews are in, in connection, right? Jews are going in and out of Eastern Europe um, mm -hmm. the whole time. It's not sealed off. Um, and the Jews, in, the Jews in Italy are um, a connecting link between the Jews of Istanbul and the Jews of Western, Central and Western Europe. So, in fact, the picture you have that this, this gives us is one of circulation. Early modern, early modern Europe and the Mediterranean comes out looking like a place where Jews circulate. It's not a kind of center periphery that we know from the modern period, but it's that circulation. So you can have Jews from the Ottoman Empire going into, going into Poland and then going into, going into uh, Germany and stopping there, or you can have them going from the Ottoman Empire to Italy and then back up into Poland. So that, there's this sense of circulation. Mm. I'm talking about this transregional aspect, which is so important. Right. Um, and then there's this question of organization. Um, this crisis forces various kinds of Jewish organization to rethink themselves, to reinvent themselves um, in, in this new environment. And you see uh, a growth in sophistication of Jewish organizational life. 
Um, if I was going to put my finger briefly on the things that title together, I think that's where I'd go. And then, I, and you do touch on this in your book, um, you know, the study of, of refugees four centuries ago, almost, I think does um, inform us, you know, about a little bit about what is going on in our world today and how we might understand it. Um, how do you think this study sort of relates to to ref understanding refugee phenomena and their experiences more broadly. I think one of the great advantage that a study like this have, uh, has over most of what's done in forced migration studies is that it's a story with an ending, right? Mm. Most work on refugees and forced migration deals with crisis that's happening and, you know, and people are struggling to deal with it, to understand it. Right. How do we solve it? Right. How do we solve it? But I have, my story is one that has an end to it. Hmm. And so that gives, you know, I mean, that gives a certain perspective that may or may not be helpful if we want to think about refugees. How, do, how does it come to an end? Not how do we deal with it at this moment, which of course is and, uh, it's absolutely key, but right. th this perspective allows you to think slightly longer term. Um, and I, I, came, I, I sort of came to four conclusions which I think resonate with what I've read about uh, forced migration studies that might be things to think about. And that is a question of solidarity. If you want to deal, the way the Jews dealt so well with their refugee crisis is because they had a sense of connection and solidarity. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Today, we alien, I mean, these are people we pity. We pity refugees. Right. right? Either they're, an, they're an other. They're an other. They're not us. Right. And somehow, to try to, try to build this solidarity, whether it's from people from that place who've migrated or, or, or however we do it, but we need to create a sense of solidarity because that's what's going to, you know, that's a major force. The other thing the Jews did for the most part, they treated the refugees as individuals. There were one or two cases where they would take a boatload of refugees and send them away. But mostly each refugee was a person with a problem that needed to be solved. Right. So right. there's no there's no othering. There's no big group. You've got you've got a problem in front of you. You've got a guy or a family. You know how can what can we do to help that person? And that too is a, is, is a much easier way of motivating yourself to help. You know because you're you know you see someone in front of you, then that's a real thing. It's not um, abstract. And that connected with the question of agency. These, these refugees are left with as much agency as possible most of the time. They're allowed to work, right? They, they make their own decisions. They're not being told what to do. I say it happens once or twice, but basically. Uh, uh, and I think that question of, of leaving as much agency in the hands of refugees as possible is also a lesson that can be learned. I mean, I'm not saying this can all be directly used in situations today. But if you think about the lessons, it may help bring new perspectives. Um, Self-help was very important. The ways the refugees organized themselves, I think, is also extremely, a very interesting and important phenomenon. Because it means that the refugees are taking their own lives in their hands. And they're not just passive. They are active. Right. Um, in part because they're given, sometimes given the resources to be able to do so and allow. Yes, because that's how they're treated. I mean, that's right. the, the mindset 
is not one of, oh, somebody I have to help. Right? When they're captives, they have to be ransomed. That's fair enough. But once they are free, then they are people and they have to be allowed to do what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Even if it means breaking customs, like not allowing strangers to work in your town. In, the, in this situation, you have to give them their own agency back. And finally, and I think not, not the least important, is why I talked about the question of understanding the spiritual and psychological needs of refugees. Right. Because in order to get yourself back on your feet, it's not, you don't just need money and a place mm-hmm. to live. You need to be able to take yourself and stand yourself on your feet and motivate yourself to, to do what needs to be done. And that is, if you want to see it in a, in a kind of uh, less religious way, a psychological problem. Mm-hmm. But for my Jews, and I think for a lot of people today, still it's a, it's a spiritual problem. Right? It, what's happened has a meaning and people are looking for meaning. And right. you have to give them ways to explore that. Which is my Jews did with the day of, um, you know, Memorial Day, where you can sit, you can remember, you sit with your community, you sit with the people who Great. went through it with you in, in a comfortable and protected place, and you have time to think deeply about what happened to you. Um, and I think that's absolutely key. I have, go on, I have slightly more detail in the book, which I really don't have time to talk about now. But <laughs> I really think that's it's one of the most important things that I took out of this book in terms of refugees. It's the spiritual, psychological aspect of it. So those are my conclusions. Um, I am not an expert in uh, post-migration studies, but I would hope that these might find some resonance and might help people think about the problems in other or broader or whatever. That's me being hopeful. You know, I I hope so too. And I, I think they will. I mean, I really do think that this study and this history has relevance far beyond, you know, Jewish studies. Um, Thank you. Sort of a, yeah. Yeah. It's really fantastic. Um, so, I mean, I, I do think you deserve a break after uh, writing this for 10 years. Um, but I, but I do like to ask this question before I let, uh, let an author go. Are you, are you working on another project now? Um, what is, what's sort of next in the, yeah. On the no, you're quite right. It's left a huge gaping hole. For ten years, and now I'm not doing it anymore. And uh, now you're stuck at home. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I've got a small project and and a larger project. I'm just starting to feel my way into the small project. Is one of the historical chronicles that was written at the time. Uh, it, it's a, a very widely quoted but not properly studied book called Yevain Mutsula written by Nathan Hanover. Uh, it's a brilliant account of what happened in Ukraine. But it's a fantastic piece of early modern historical writing, which blends reportage um, with eyewitness testimony, with literary motifs. And you can see how Hanover is weaving together stories from the Jewish tradition, the stories from more local traditions, so Ukrainian, Polish traditions how he weaves it all together to make this text, small text. So that's the, my immediate thing that I'm doing. What I want to do, and I'm sort of feeling my way into it, is to stay with this question of trans-regional networks. Hmm. And I want to stay with the Poland-Germany uh, nexus and try to 
flesh out in more detail what the networks, the early modern networks were that connected Polish Jewry and German Jewry. You have trade, you have visitors, you have letters, you have books. And I want to try and see if I can't come to some deeper understanding of, of the structure and meaning of that connection. But that's at least another 10 years. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing how, how it comes together, uh, whether, it's, whether it takes 10 years or not. <laughs> um, Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a really, really wonderful and fascinating discussion. Thank you very much.